morning church ryan here hey a couple things just want to get you up to speed um, we continue to pray as a church about this place we're in we feel like there is a we're moving through a threshold okay from one room to the next and uh, we're just seeking god on this and praying and there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes a lot of conversations um but we just want you to know that keep praying because the whole movement here is about God transforming us and God changing us and God working in us and teaching us and stretching us. And so you to keep praying for us as a church, for the leadership, for the staff, for our house churches. Um, if you want to be a part of a house church, this is a perfect opportunity to jump in, dip your toes. Um, and you can do all that on our website on the main page. And, and I want to let you know that a week from today, we're actually gathering together as a church again outdoors. We're going to be here at Fellowship Covenant Church in their picnic shelter. They are so generous, so gracious to let us do this. Um, this church, just so you know, this church has been here. This building has been here since the early 70s. But this has been a church in existence for a long time. In fact, I believe they are the oldest church in Arvada. So this church has a history, has deep roots in the community, and they're doing some really great things with Hope House, um, with feeding people, with caring for people. They walk their neighborhood and pray. Um, so just want you to know, we're, we're super blessed and uh, we are honored really to be um, allowed to use this picnic shelter on July 18th. Uh, let us know, yeah, if you're coming, we're gonna have same as normal, we're gonna have some kids stuff. Uh, we're gonna have a time of worship. We're gonna be able to be together and we're probably gonna bring in some food, just like we do, because that's how we roll. Um, one last thing, Arvada Sports Camp. Love for you to be a part of this one to four different nights at the end of July. Go check this out from six to eight at night. Uh, we, we need people to help us check kids in. Um, and, and on the last night, we're doing a big barbecue. And so if you wanna be a part of this in any way, we would love to have you because we wanna show Arvada High that we love them and support them in what they're trying to do in the community as well. So let me pray, we'll get started. God, thank you for our time this morning, um, just in the dog days of summer here, July, God, will you, will you slow us down in this moment? Will you have us uh, listen in and lean in and wrestle with this text? Because I, God, I know that there's a lot that I've wrestled with. Show us a way forward. Amen. Okay, so really quickly, as a child... Um, what did you want to be? What did you want to be? Uh, there's a big joke in our house that, um, that I didn't want to be a fireman. Um, I wanted to be the fire truck. And so, uh, but you, you, here's the thing, like as a little kid, you want to be something and, and you dream big and you want to be an astronaut or whatever. You don't as a kid, and, and forgive me if this, you know, finds you where you are, you don't, as a child, just like dream about going into insurance, you know, and selling insurance or uh, maybe doing some, you know, tax law. 
you don't dream as a kid of being in a cubicle or going in on Saturdays and writing your TPS reports, okay? You dream of being an astronaut or a ninja or a rock star or a rock star ninja astronaut. You don't, you, you dream big. You have big dreams, greatness dreams. And the reality is there's something in us as human beings and it gets tempered as we get older and there's reasons behind that that some are good and some aren't, but we have this desire to be great, to make an impact, to make a difference in this world, to add beauty to all of this world. And, and when you think about the mythology, especially American mythology, uh, we find this mythology in our movies. So what are our movies? Our, our biggest grossing films in American history are series that talk about uh, good and evil and heroes and villains and power and and using your power for good. I mean, think of the Avengers and think of like Iron Man 1, 2, 3, 17, whatever it is now. The, the point is, is that most cases, these are human beings that um, have special powers and they defend the weak and they save the world. Now, some of you super nerds are like, some of them aren't human. Yeah, I get it. But the point is, is that that that's they're human in likeness there there's human beings with special powers that defend the weak and save the world and this is kind of the narrative over and over every single story to a t has that involved in it and and the reality is it taps into our humanness it taps into something that's kind of latent inside of us this uh desire to be great to be known to to achieve to to experience great things. And this isn't all bad. I mean, this is a Genesis one thing. This is us calling to be rulers of this world and to steward it well. And Genesis one starts off with this, with Adam and Eve and this idea of, of being rulers and reigning over creation, not strip mining and um, you know drilling, but um, ruling and reigning and flourishing the rest of creation. And, and that was kind of like intrinsic in us as human beings. But as you know, in the fall, the ego and the pride come into play and it warps that, it changes that, it bends it out of shape and it gets broken. And what is a desire to serve Okay, the weak, in a sense, becomes a desire to be served by the weak. And, and power comes into play and economics and all these things. And um, it, it goes from a childlike desire to do something that matters. And it gets twisted into a warped to de desire to be known as someone who matters. And our culture is full of wanting to feel like we matter to others and we will curate our social media and we will uh, embellish and lie and twist and all to make ourselves feel like we matter that we're great how do we hang on to the one which is this childlike desire to do something that matters and let go of the other this kind of selfish ego desire to matter to people and to be known as great. This text is really powerful because it has a lot to do with the trajectory of Jesus 
in the heart of the disciples. So it says this in verse 30. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. So um, he's in hiding. He's on his way towards Jerusalem, but he's trying to do some things because he has some things to say to the disciples. He has some teaching to give them, um, and he wants to teach them personally. Now, what you need to understand is in Mark, we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have a lot of the teachings that we have in Matthew. Matthew is five separate discourses of Jesus. Mark's very truncated. It's, it's kind of a quick, brief uh, uh, history and account of Jesus. But what's interesting about Mark is he slows down and he talks, he talks about, he, he lets this teaching of Jesus that comes to the disciples personally kind of come to the surface. And in verse 31, it says, because he was teaching his disciples, he, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days will rise. Okay, so this is the second of three prophecies that Mark uh, highlights in the life of Jesus. And these are from Jesus himself. So we've already dealt with the first one. This is the second one. And there's one more to come. And, and it says in verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So this is classic disciples. They don't understand. They're afraid to ask. Okay. Uh, and they're afraid because I think they're afraid of, of some of his responses are pretty heavy. And, and, and they didn't understand what he meant. And why didn't they understand? Well, remember, in their mindset, in their whole background of being Jewish young men um, and the history of their people and the, the interpretations of the prophecies, the way Jesus was talking about being Messiah was out of bounds to what they had normally understood. They want him to fit their stereotype of what Messiah is. And so he's teaching them to reimagine Okay? the kingdom, and that this kingdom comes through suffering and self-sacrifice. And he's trying to get them to reimagine that, and they just can't do it. Verse 33, it says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, this is so different than what Jesus has just said. I mean, it's just almost laughable. And one minute, he's telling them, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to suffer. We're heading to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be suffered and killed and I will be risen I will rise to new life. And in the next minute, they're arguing, the 12 of them are arguing, who amongst them is the best? Who's the best one? Who's the greatest? We should rank ourselves. Now, some of you are going to laugh at this, but literally this is, uh, in, in my life, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio. And when things aren't, when, when seasons are in between and things like that, there's always these conversations. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest what? You know, and, and I'm like, I get so into it, right? And the reality is these guys are, are, are kind of, in a sense, one-upping each other. They're trying to posture. They're trying to push themselves ahead to the front. 
and they're arguing about who's the greatest because they all have a desire to be great. And, 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 and Jesus is great, and, and they're trying to be uh, in a position to be noticed. And what's interesting is that James, um, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, ends up writing a letter later in the New Testament. And he says this in James 3. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, we have, uh, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. So this is a warning, actually. James is, is warning church leaders and the church, um, all of us, to avoid envy and selfishness. Well, what is envy? Envy is coveting another person's story. That's what envy is. Envy, I'm going to just say it again, envy is coveting another person's story. Um, and, and just FYI, and you know this and I know this, but there's always somebody ahead of you. There's always someone smarter than you. There's already, always someone that looks like they have things figured out. And we're always comparing ourselves with people who are, in a sense, ahead of us in life and not behind us in life. And you will always live in someone's shadow. And this is why envy sucks the joy out of life. This is why envy ends up destroying uh, what God's created us for. And so when you covet someone else's story... Uh, for instance, I wish I was married like so-and-so. I wish I was cool like so-and-so. I wish, wish I was gifted like so-and-so. When you do that, you actually rob, you, you, you actually, it's disorder. It's not how God created us. So, I mean, real quick, who do you envy? Who do you envy? Is it someone who um, has made it through kid life? Is it someone who has kids? Is it someone who's got their career in order? Is it someone who doesn't struggle with uh, anxiety and depression? I mean, who is it that you envy? The other thing is ambition. Now, ambition isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It drives us forward. There's, there's certain qualities to ambition that are good. But selfish ambition is this kind of ingrown, um, what's best for me tact and perspective. Mark Sayers, one of my favorite authors in the Christian world, uh, says, if your dream was realized, but you didn't get any credit for it, would you still be happy? Now, that is a, I've been reflecting on that for quite a bit, and um, I'm about to share with you guys where I've been sideways. And this is actually, I'm nervous to share this because it's, it's fresh. But many of you know, for about four years or so, I've been working with the Arvada Police Department. And many of you know, in the last couple of weeks, has been kind of insane. 
there's been two officer-involved shootings and there's been an officer death. And recently, you know, we've been involved, we've been talking to officers, but we're kind of, um, we're, we're careful about how, how much we're inserting ourselves into, into the whole thing. Now, last week was the officer Gordon Beasley's funeral. And our names had gotten pushed forward. This is Corey and I, our names had gotten pushed forward to officiate the funeral, but the family decided to go with it in a different direction. And to be honest with you, I was kind of glad at the time. It allowed me to hang out with officers and spend time with a lot of different people. But as I'm sitting at the funeral, I began to feel something inside of me, a little anger, a little frustration, a little envy and selfish ambition, because I've worked for four years a lot of hours, a lot of volunteer time, a lot of awkward moments, a lot of a lot of self-sacrifice to be a part of this department. And we weren't asked to do anything at the funeral. And literally, you guys, it's selfish ambition. What was in my heart was selfish ambition. I took this quote from Mark Sayers, if your dream was realized, but you didn't get any credit for it, would you still be happy? And it wrecked me. And, and, and this idea that Jesus is pushing towards the disciples is a way of self-sacrifice, of, of, um, of, of moving down, okay? Not up, not up in status, not up in power, but down in humility, down in serving. And so in verse 35, sitting down, it says, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He doesn't castigate for them for wanting to be great. He just redefines what greatness is. And he talks about that the way of Jesus, he's like, greatness is moving down. It's moving to the back of the line. It's emptying yourself. It's sacrificing. It's dying to yourself. And this idea in, in Greek is this word diakonos is, is servant, and it actually means one who waits on tables. One, one who waits on tables. A servant exists to make the lives of others better, not their own. This idea of how can I serve people well, because a servant is, when you, when you know a good servant, you know a, a few things about them. One, they are hardworking. They are faithful. They are content. And they don't really care what other people think of them. That's what a servant is. And that's not how my heart was ordered during that moment at that funeral. To Jesus, to serve means greatness. To serve means greatness. And what's interesting is you contrast that in the ancient world that Jesus was a part of, this first century Roman-occupied world. Plato actually said this, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? But Jesus flips that on his head and he talks about how real life 
is serving. Real life is sacrifice. Real life is humility. And this is why I think it's so important for many of us to understand that as we face depression, as we struggle with depression in our lives, a lot of times one of the things that can help us, and I'm not talking about this will cure your depression, I'm just saying one of the things that helps us is to move towards serving people. That actually to get out of our own headspace and to get out of our own, um, the whirlpool of self-emotion in, in, in us is to actually serve people and to get out of that, uh, that rut a bit. And even today, I mean, here's the thing. We, we just don't understand how much of this upward mov movement in our lives is ingrained in us. It's ingrained in everything we, we see, um, advertisement, radio, um, everything we see on social media is always about moving up and moving, getting stronger and more powerful and more comfortable and more at ease and more in control. All these things, upward mobility, the American dream. Jesus does something pretty amazing here. He says, it says he took a ch little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child um, in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not, does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, what is he doing here? Well, Jesus is actually acting out greatness right in front of their eyes. His version of greatness. And you need to understand the first century Galilee. Uh, children were treated differently than children are today. Today in America, I read a social, like a, uh, an opinion piece where um, this guy was talking about how this, our, our country's ruled by children. And, uh, and I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative against politicians, even though they're children, but our country is, is ruled by children. We spend more money on children. Um, advertisers push things towards children. Uh, every, everything, everything around us is like geared towards children. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but this guy called it a kindergarten. You know, not like an oligarchy, but a kindergarten. That our country is ruled by children. We idealize children. We you're, you're not really a whole couple or family until you have children. And, but not, not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, it was a very stratified society, and children were at the bottom of the pile. I mean, they were down there with people who were, um, you know, disabled and things like that. I mean, it, they were at the bottom of the pile. They had nothing to offer. Uh, they were unimportant, and they were mouths to be fed. And so this, the language that we hear in the New Testament about the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner in our day is kind of like the foster child, the single mom, and the immigrant, legal and illegal. And, and what does it look like to serve, welcome one of these little children? Well, it means to Jesus, serving means time and attention. For, for Jesus to actually bring a child into the center was actually to bring this child and give this child worth and 
um, show them that they were a part of things. And that's ultimately what serving does. That's what hospitality does. Uh, in, in many of your Bibles, the, the story ends here, but it, it continues. There's like a chapter heading or a little, you know, break. But it says here in verse 38, Teacher, said John, remember this is John talking, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. This is John talking, not Peter. I mean, this is actually John being like Peter. I'm sure Peter was like, uh-oh, he just stepped into what I normally step into. Uh, but they remember a few chapters ago, a few verses ago, actually just last week, I'm sorry, uh, they, had a, they had a trouble driving out demons. And John's like, hey, there's this guy, he's driving out demons, but, you know, he's not one of us. So what do we do? And it's actually translated, he's not following us. And I think it's an interesting that this doesn't come out in some of our regular translations. Um, it says, because he's not one of us. But actually, the disciples had this kind of pretty important feeling. You know, they're, they're following Jesus. They're one of the 12. And they think that others should follow them, not Jesus. Interesting, right? Jesus says in verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can the next moment say anything about bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus is like, this guy's following me. This guy's doing the things that I uh, want you to be doing. And what's interesting is that for whoever is not against us is for us is an axiom from Cicero. It's actually a kind of a modern day axiom that a lot of people used in their conversations. And the disciples still don't get it. I mean, John still doesn't get it. I mean, it's clear from there, you know, this is the second kind of moment that Jesus says, here's the direction I'm going, here's why I'm going there, here's what's going to have to happen, and they just still don't get it. They don't get their place in it. They're arguing about their greatness. And I think the big question for you and I is like, how often do we not get it? I mean, if we're really honest, how often do we not get it? How often are we arguing about greatness and belittling other people who are following Jesus? How, do, how often do we not get who Jesus actually was? And in turn, who we're supposed to be? Verse 41 says, Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Here's what's interesting about that line, a cup of water. In the first century, you, you showed hospitality through food, clothing, wine, bread. Water was like what someone who didn't have anything gave to somebody else. It's what the poor would give to the poor. Jesus is saying, if, if you give a cup of water in my name, if you do something small, 
If you do something even out of your, your nothingness, in my name, you're doing it for the kingdom. See, we follow a God that actually wants even little tiny things done. Tiny things done that no one notices. We live in an age where churches do a really good job at telling the church how great they are. How much they've done for the poor, how much they've done in this, you know, they do, we do videos of our missions trips, you know. But ultimately, at the end of the day, 1 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, talk about the motives behind why we do what we do. And at the end of the day, we are going to have to give an account for the motives. When all the things that we've done are done and gone, it's ultimately our motives that remain. What's interesting is I've recently been reading a book to go along with a few other books that are in my life, but this book is called Safe, Saved by Faith and Hospitality. And it was intriguing to me because most of my life I have been taught and uh, that uh, sola fide, which is uh, Latin for saved by faith, alone. And we have been told that over and over again in our church traditions, that it's grace, that it's a simple act of faith, and you're saved. And you, you go to heaven when you die. And what's interesting is scripture does say that, and yet there's more to it. And we struggle with it. We struggle with it because in most of our Protestant, up, you know, the hallmarks of the Protestant tradition, there's been this aversion to something called works righteousness, meaning that we do things, um, we do works in order to become more righteous. And many of us in the Protestant tradition, that's one of the big protests towards the Catholic Church. That during the you know, early days of the Reformation, there was a pushback towards Catholicism and how Catholicism over time, like any church, like any faith, uh, twists things, things kind of get off tracks a little bit. And, and this, there was a pushback towards doing things to earn God's favor. But what's interesting is most of scripture has a conversation about God being a God of hospitality. And we read many stories in the Old Testament and the New about hospitality. Abraham and Sarah, um, you know, they run across a couple of strangers um, in the oaks of Mamre and they present them hospitality. In contrast to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that treats strangers with contempt and violence. You have table fellowship of Jesus. You have so many instances of that. You have the church in Corinth and Paul talking about how the church in Corinth needs to uh, reach out and be welcoming to everybody in its midst. See, the God of Christian scripture is a God of hospitality. A God who extends hospitality to us. 
And because of that, we extend hospitality to others. And many of us have gotten confused with this idea of, oh, I'm saved. I'm saved out of faith alone in Christ. And I think that there's much more required of us than just a mental faith. I think hospitality is required to us. I think it's the act and it's the process whereby the identity of a stranger, of an other person, being transformed into that of a guest. And ultimately what this all is, is Jesus trying to reorient the disciples into thinking differently, not only about him, but about themselves. Jesus is heading down. We see this in you know, Philippians 2, the, the, the beautiful passage of, of God becoming human in the form of Jesus, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, all the way to the cross. He's trying to convince the disciples that he has to go to the cross, that he has to sacrifice, that he has to lay down, that he has to empty himself. And he's trying to teach the disciples that so do they. So do we. We have to empty ourselves. We have to go down. And it's very difficult to do that in a culture that says you have to go up. And we're going to be talking about this for the next number of weeks. It has to do with all parts of our lives, including our finances. That as followers of Jesus, we're, we're meant to do a downward trajectory, not an upward trajectory. We're meant to serve. So this morning, I want to encourage you to come to the table, the communion table. Because the table is the ultimate place where God meets us in in this moment because the table is opened to us we become guests and by merely be merely being invited to the table by jesus we are transformed he transforms us from outsiders to guests from uh, uh people far from god to followers of jesus for to apprenticeship to a downward path so i want to encourage you to pray together and to take the cup and to take the bread together.